We're told by a growing chorus of people on the left that gender is a fact determined entirely by an individual's private feelings and choices, and that government must protect and other institutions must recognize whichever gender one chooses. Defying many in her own feminist intellectual circles, British philosopher Kathleen Stock has bravely and vocally challenged this gender identity theory, arguing that sex is biologically immutable fact and that gender cannot be understood independently of that fact. Today, we will discuss what's impressive about Stock's philosophical analysis of sex and gender, but also examine some of the shortcomings of her analysis. Welcome to New Ideal Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. Today, we'll discuss Kathleen Stock Reason's Critique of Gender Ideology. I'm Dan Schwartz, visiting fellow at ARI, and with me are my colleagues, Ankar Gatte, senior fellow, and Ben Baer, fellow. Hi. Hi, Dan. Dan. So, uh, Ben, um, Kathleen Stock, um, people in the UK might be more familiar with her because she's regarded as quite controversial. Uh, I think partly she's been critical of some of the legislation in the UK that her viewers might not be familiar with. Uh, so can you kind of tell us about why she's seen as controversial in the UK? Yes, sure. Stock is a, a former philosophy professor at University of Sussex. We'll say more in a moment about why former. Uh, she only recently resigned her post, but uh, it ultimately was over a controversy that started back in 2004 with the uh, a law that was passed in the UK, the UK Gender Recognition Act. And this is a law that allowed a small number of people who had begun to transition their bodies uh, to change their sex for legal purposes, as long as they had obtained special certification proof that they had actually started to go through this process. Uh, so that's 2004, fast forward to just a few years ago, and you get new proposals uh, being championed by various activist groups, which would allow the same legislation basically to apply to anyone who, without necessarily going through any kind of medical transition, simply self-identifies as one, uh, one gender or another, even if there's no physical uh, manifestations of this. And this is something that a lot of people in the UK and around the world started to object to, especially a number of prominent feminists. Uh, Stock is one of them. She started speaking up against these proposals in 2018. She thought it would threaten women's rights. Uh, it's, a, it's a position that uh, is associated with a group of feminists who call themselves gender critical feminists. Uh, sometimes they get pejoratively referred to as TERFs uh, because they're trans exclusionary radical feminists. Uh, this is some of the controversy you may have heard surrounding J.K. Rowling, uh, the author of the, the various fiction books, who was similarly speaking up against these kinds of proposals from uh, a feminist perspective. Um, and I think there's also the uh, 2010 Equality Act in the UK uh, prohibits discrimination against people if they're in special classes, and that includes people who self-identify uh, currently as um, whatever gender they choose to be. Um, so how has um, Stock's critique been received? How is this seen by people uh, in the UK? This is part of why she's a former philosophy professor. So I think she becomes prominent even 
like in the philosophy profession because of these posts in 2018, which are critical or at least questioning some of what is going on in the UK and some of this legislation and the arguments brought forth on behalf or in support of the legislation. It's then that she gets significant pushback from both from academics and from activists who are operating in this area, both for trans issues, for feminist issues. So there's, there's a letter signed by 600 plus philosophy professors that protest what um, she's writing and what she did these posts. Um, and you get this, I think of it as a smear of that she's transphobic and indeed any use of this kind of phobia language today, I would assume it's a smear until proven otherwise. So something like Islamophobia, I think is a, a smear. So it's like transphobic is like, if you think of some real phobia, someone has a phobia to spiders. It's like, you see a spider and it's ah, and like the idea that that's what you're dealing with here, even if you disagree with what she's arguing, and even if you think some of the arguments are shoddy, the idea that it, it, what you're dealing with is that, uh, which is what transphobic is meant to connote um, is, I think it's a smear. Um, but so it's, so there's pushback in the philosophy profession and in, in academic circles. Then there are students lobbying that she be fired or dismissed from the university, what, what she's University of Sussex. And so there's also some philosophers who write in her defense, not necessarily that they say they agree with her views or agree with the arguments, but that she should be able to make them and make them in a climate that she's not being harassed because she's advancing these ideas and these arguments. But she's eventually, uh, she's not fired, but she quits because of ongoing harassment. And I think it, it's important when one thinks, um, now, I, as you said, Dan, this is from the UK. I haven't followed this as closely as some US stories about just all the dynamics of what's happening on the campus and so on. So I've read some of these things. I've read these letters by the, signed by these academics and so on, but I haven't followed. It's not the same as it for, for, for me, at least for a, U, a US case where I know more of the details. But so in general, I'll say that when someone resigns here because of harassment, part of what that means is that the university and more broadly, I think often government officials are not doing their job, or I, I think at least what I think their job should be of dealing with the harassment. So it's not just the fact of being harassed, but you feel like your institution is not protecting you or is not on your side in regard to the harassment. And that's part of why these people resign, I think, even though they're not fired. And it's, this is what it means, like you're pushed out. Um, uh, and so that's, that's what October, 2021, and then this book, which develops some of the arguments that you can see er, like earlier forms and versions of in these posts, the book comes out, Material Girls. Um, and that's, that's what we're talking about today. And then she's goes on, um, I guess she's a founding faculty at the University of Austin. So this new initiative um, to, to, that's picking up a number of uh, academics who've been in this way, I think kind of pushed out of their institutions. 
Um, so, so that in a, in a nutshell is sort of part of the backstory and, and, the, and the genesis of the book. So Ben, can you help me understand that the book is also seen as quite controversial um, and I, I take it it's seen as in some way anti-trans or we don't want to use the smear of transphobic, but you know, or a turf, it's trans exclusionary. Um, is do those claims have any merits when we actually look at the book? No. And that is more or less what the the 200 philosophy professors who spoke up in her defense who actually bothered to look at her arguments were more or less claiming. Incidentally, I, I, I can't resist saying that when you look at the list of the 200 who came to her defense, it includes all the best British philosophers, all the, all the ones who are kind of the last defenders of reason. And I think that's saying something. Uh, and yeah, they're not saying they necessarily agree with her, but that this is an argument that you, that you can make and that it should be debated and not dismissed as transphobic. Uh, and she makes abundantly clear in the book that she she is respectful of most of the people who identify as trans. She even takes uh, certain other feminists to task for demonizing them too much. Uh, and the the main thesis of the book is is not about trans people. It's about what's wrong with what is called gender identity theory. This idea that there's a that that you can basically choose your gender just just by because of some inner feeling that you have and that there's no biological basis for that so her view is that is that this theory which she's critiquing actually fails to understand the phenomena of uh, trans people fails to understand especially a lot of individual differences among them uh it kind of lumps them together into a group and 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 tries to uh turn them into a uh basically tries to manipulate them for the sake of uh, political objectives. And, um, well, I, I'd say part, it's important that this book is addressed to a general audience. So she's talking not just about the academic debate on some of these issues, but of how it's being debated in the in the wider culture, in political circles, as we were talking about, I mean, part of it's about legislation that's being enacted in the UK. So when we're when one's thinking about what she's addressing and her view of it, it's important to get it. It's beyond the halls of academia, and there part of what I think she's responding to, and I think she's right about this, that there's a kind of orthodoxy that and orthodoxy here doesn't mean there's one view that everybody holds and that there's no arguments or debates at all but it means they decide what's debatable what's arguable and what's not so when you think of a religious orthodoxy it does not mean that they don't have any debates about anything but there's a sphere in which they say debate is okay and yeah you can ask questions about this and there's a sphere in which they say no, if you ask those questions, or if you have these views, you're a heretic, and you're a blasphemer, and so on. And to feel that there's an element, like a real element of that going on in the discussion and debate today, when you're thinking about the more broad culture, not just academia, though I certainly think 
It's also present in academia and that she's come to think that as well. But that that more broadly is, that's part of the phenomenon. And she's pushing back against the phenomenon. It's a phenomenon other people have noted. She quotes some people, trans activists, so on, who think, yeah, there's something like church going on here. And uh, I think my favorite line in the book, it's early on, it's, um, well, it's something like, I might not get it word for word, but I didn't become a professional philosopher to go to church. Um, and that's to like your job, close quote, I mean, close quote. So that's right, your job as a philosopher is not just to echo an orthodoxy. Um, and so she's challenging some of those things. She knows she's challenging some of those things. And there's also, this is a little more in the background, I think, of what she's doing, but it comes to the foreground, certainly sometimes. And that's, we have a culture, and it's not like this in the last 10 years, but you can live 50 plus years at least, of various activists who say, I'm a spokesman for Group X, and it's, I'm a spokesman for women. I'm a spokesman for lesbians. I'm a spokesman for the working class. I'm a spokesman for Americans as against immigrants, or I'm a spokesman for immigrants as against And it's, you can have a perspective and it's important to have this perspective often. Who appointed you a spokesman for everybody? Um, so everyone in this group. So now you supposedly speak for everyone, their ideas, their interests. And part of what she's arguing is that this orthodoxy, she's right that there is this kind of orthodoxy, is um, among the people labeled as heretics are actually, it, it includes trans people who have different views, who don't agree with all of this. And they're also pushed out and as though that, um, no, you, you, we, we're not even entertaining that view and that argument. Um, and so she's pushing back against that, that uh, so in the UK, like one of the groups now that, that there's a considerable amount in the book is Stonewall. Um, and it's, as many of these groups in, do it, it's like, we're a spokesman for everybody. And it's resisting that idea. No, you have certain views that doesn't make you a spokesman for everybody in some class that you think you're the spokesman of. So this that that's part of what is being pushed back against as well. And that's not like, if you think of that as anti-trans, um, you're not thinking clearly, if that's what you think. Uh, ben, I, I remember when you uh, started reading the book, you told me you were surprised um, how much of interest there was in it. Can you say a little bit about why the book might be worth reading to our audience? Yeah, I mean, even if you don't agree with the thesis of this book, it's it's really unique in the following way. It's it's a it's both a an Ankar mentioned that it was written for a general audience, uh, and it's so it's very accessible, but at the same time, it is very philosophical, and there's very precise analysis of critical key concepts in this debate, and we're going to talk more about that later. So it's just kind of a model for the way public intellectuals should be writing. And even if you don't agree with the thesis, it's just, it's, it's a real pleasure to read just from that perspective. Uh, though I also do agree with uh, a number of the key claims that she makes and we'll talk more about that. Uh, and Ankar, you wanted to say more also about 
the kind of the um, the value uh, perspective that she takes in the book and the stance. Yeah, it, and it relates to what you said that it, it's it's philosophical, it's reason. There's an argument, um, and I mean, part of what we talked about the context and the reaction to it. I think of the book as it's courageous and it has a kind of quiet courage. It's not making. Uh, it's not written at all in a style to push buttons, I think, though it has and will uh, trigger people, but it's not written at all. If anything, it's written as to try to not trigger people and to try to get them actually think about this rather than already think you know the answer to everything. Like think about some of this, but she knows and it's clear, like it's open that she's challenging conventional wisdom and that it's this is it's important to do that it's part often of what a philosopher does is to look at things that everyone takes in effect as we know this and to ask okay well what are the ground do we really know this what are the grounds for this what are the arguments what would be counter arguments to these is there evidence that contradicts this idea that we're not really looking at we're brushing aside so that's all part of what she's doing and it it evidences a, I think, a real concern that she's trying to understand the phenomenon. And this is what you would have to look at in order to understand this and have views about this. So, and that's part of the, the value that even if you don't agree with everything in it, or even if you agree with, disagree with substantial portions of it, it's valuable to have a, a analysis that they, like these are some of the main issues that you would need to think about some of the arguments made on this issue and she's often entertaining more than one view um and think like is there possibility to this and is there possibility to that that all if you're interested in actual understanding is helpful even if you don't come to agree with the whole thrust of the analysis or argument I think that this book is going to be valuable to a whole range of people who might read it. Uh, she's obviously trying to write it for people who are sympathetic to the idea of justice for trans people, but she thinks they need to basically check their premises about the ideology that they've taken on board in order to do that. Uh, she wants to show them that that ideology is is trying to sacrifice truth to justice and that that's just uh, not right. But I, I also think people who read this book from a different perspective will get some value too. Like there are probably people on the right who find out she's a critic of gender ideology. Let me read this book to get more ammunition in the culture wars. But if those people read this book, they're going to learn a lot too, because there's, there's a lot here that they, you know, some of these facts that you have to think about if you want to understand this question, which I think many of them haven't thought about. They're going to find out these issues are more complex uh, then they might have appreciated, and uh, they will. Uh, I, I I recommend the book to them too. So almost everybody who reads this book is going to be challenged by it in one way or another, and that's that's a sign that she's not writing the book to pander to an audience. That she's she's again doing the job that a philosopher should be doing. Okay, so let's get into some of the content of the book. Um, 
So one a part of the book deals with an analysis of what biological sex is, how we should understand that. Um, and, and I have heard some people say that um, the idea that there are just two sexes, um, that it's a binary, is overly simplistic, um, that there are maybe empirical reasons to think that sex occurs on a spectrum. Um, what does Stock have to say about the way we should conceptualize biological sex? Right, so this is, this is now getting into how she actually starts to analyze some of these concepts. And one thing to clarify up front is that not everyone she's targeting, not everyone who subscribes to this gender identity theory that says you can choose your own gender, actually denies the existence of binary biological sex. Many of them will say, well, it's real, it's just not relevant to uh, gender. There's a big difference between sex and gender for uh, many of these people. I think there is possibly some difference, even if it's not what they say it is. But uh, there are some uh, who adhere to gender identity theory who do deny the reality of biological sex and who make that part of their case. And it's a central thesis of her book. It's right at the beginning of the book, I think chapter, uh, chapter three, two or three, she, she argues, no, sex, biological sex is real and it is essentially binary and that that is true on just about any account of biological sex you could give. And in her chapter on this, she gives a number of different accounts. Uh, I don't think I'll go into all the details about uh, what they hold. One's called the gamete account, which is for uh, male, the male-female distinction across all the species. Uh, there's the chromosome account, which I think more people are familiar with. That's one that really only applies to human males and females. Uh, and they each, they each understand what it me means to be male or female in a slightly, from a slightly different perspective. Uh, but one thing that she talks a fair amount about is how for both of these cases, there are, uh, for both of these accounts, there are borderline cases. There are, there are cases where uh, a, someone, let's say, has the, is born with a Y chromosome, which would normally make you biologically male, uh, but for reasons having to do with uh, complexities of genetics, um, certain kinds of in, uh, genetic uh, hormone problems, uh, even when they have the Y chromosome, they will still develop female biological features because of this hormone problem. And so you get cases that would be classified as male by one biological account, but which, you know, by anybody's uh, observation, they're going to look like a female. And so these accounts will uh, classify things strangely in that case, but there's still a binary difference between uh, the ones that count as males and the ones that count as females. And so the fact that there are these borderline cases prompts her to consider a third account uh, where you're, you, you count as male or female if you have enough of the relevant kind of observable features uh, that come from the underlying mechanism. And this might classify things differently from either the gamete or the chromosome account. But even on this view, there's uh, the fact that there are, there, there are borderline cases doesn't challenge the fact that there is still an essential difference uh, between male and female. The overwhelming majority of people fall clearly into one case or another. And the fact that there are borderline cases where it's uh, a tougher call doesn't mean that there's a third sex or that there are multiple sexes. Uh, it just means that there are borderline cases. And that's true for most biological concepts. You, you, always, you, you encounter a lot of cases in biology where you have, for example, 
trying to classify certain species? Is it, does it belong to a certain organism? Does it belong to one species or another? It's kind of, it's pretty normal in biological uh, categorization that this is the case. It's, it's normal outside of biology too. She doesn't mention this point, but by a lot, you know, borderline cases are for the most part, the norm in all conceptualization. And that doesn't stop us from thinking that the, the, the concepts refer to real things in the world. There are real differences and similarities uh, that fall into only a pretty delimited uh, set of kinds. Um, so it's, it's also true, one of the other things that she uh, discusses in the book is the, uh, the various gender identity theories who argue in part because of the way they negate the, the biological binaries, that therefore sex is just a social construction. And she goes through, and I think Ankar may say a little bit more about this, the, the intellectual history of various uh, kind of post-modernist, post-structuralist thinkers who've taken this position, Judith Butler is one of them, that uh, the, the same kinds of arguments that they give for why sex is just a social construct in their view would apply to all these other biological concepts. They'd apply to basically any kind of scientific category you want. And of course, some of them are happy to do that, but then that ends up saying, that ends up implying that you know, reality is a social construction. And there's, no, there's nothing special about biological sex that singles it out as, as uh, uniquely socially constructed when all these other scientific categories aren't. And at the end of the day, she thinks that it's, it's not an arbitrary construct. Biological sex is not an arbitrary concept because it is, it is, uh, these are concepts that are based on obvious perceptual differences that you can observe between people, even if they're not always reliable indicators, even if there are borderline cases. And these differences, they make a big difference to our lives, and we need a concept that's going to capture these. Uh, and that's a theme that should, I think, uh, resonate, I think, with people who are familiar with objectivist epistemology. We'll come back to that a little bit later. Part of what then she argues in the book about the, the categories of male, female, and capturing the issue of biological sex is why we need these concepts, um, that, that it is what are they doing for us? How do they help us? One of the ways she puts it is how do the, the concepts should help us navigate the world. So how do they help us do that to both think and act uh, more successfully in the world? She talks about a number of ways in which they're indispensable in our thinking. The primary one is in thinking, of, and, and the primary, and the most obvious one is in thinking about reproduction. We're a species that is, reproduction is sexual reproduction. And the distinction between male and female that we have for human beings, but we have it for many other species because many species are sexually sexually reproducing is because the fact of reproduction is a really 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 important fact when you're thinking about biology and when you're thinking about species and so she has that i wish actually it had more prominence in her argument like it's clear that she thinks yeah you need these you have to have concepts for biological sex, male, female, 
because of the issue of reproduction. And that's true of human beings and that's true about many other uh, living things as well. It, so she makes that point, but I think she should have made more of the point of the, that. And I think one of the reasons it, that in the book it might not be featured as much as it might otherwise have been. And what I think in terms of just thinking about the, the power of the argument, it should have been highlighted more, is that there's, it, when she's thinking about how the arguments are working and sort of how the debate is working, there's looming in the background the idea that if the male female has a biological reality, that then um, the species, well, and in this case, human beings, you're determined by that biology. And then if you're thinking in the feminist context and part of what they've been combating, this idea is because you're female, you can't engage in logic as well. Math will be difficult for you. You'll cry a lot and so on. And there's, there is a, or, and certainly has been when you're thinking about the arguments over time, this kind of view that you're determined by your biology in that kind of way. And you're determined in an intellectual and moral way, even by your biology. And resisting that, I think, leads her to downplay the issue that, like, if you're thinking from a biological evolutionary perspective, and you're asking, why do we have the concepts of male and female? It's to understand biology and reproduction. That's the primary. What she focuses more on is what I think of as secondary issues. So she said, like, if we didn't have these in medicine, there's all kinds of things that you have to understand in medicine about differences between male and female at a biological level. And indeed, there's this criticism, which I think, again, is valid in feminist circles, that medicine has been too male-oriented. The paradigm when they think about health is always, well, the health of a male. And, so and there's differences and important differences for male and female. And in order to be able to focus on those, think about them, and then have different practices and so on, you need these concepts. Uh, and then she deals with some others which become sort of more controversial, I think. I think there's an order to the ones she's taking. And that's, so another one is in sports, that we have a distinction between male and female that's biological. It's in terms of sex here, and bi a biological sex. And then there's questions about why that is. Um, I, I have certain views about that, um, but it's, so she goes through a number I think it's four cases of where, look, I mean, this is where we use the concepts and they're performing a function for us that we would lose um, if we did away with the, if we think somehow, no, we've progressed beyond thinking that there's uh, uh, these biological sexes. Um, and I think that's another interesting part of the argument. So not just kind of what's the basis of the concept, or, or at least putting putting a little differently. Thinking about the basis of the concept, you have to think about like, what is it distinguishing from what and why? Like, is that, do those differences exist in reality? And then what difference do the differences make? Like, why do we want to be able to focus on one set of things as against the other? And there's an argument for why that's important.
So turning from uh, the analysis of the concept of sex to gender, um, I think Stock does think there is some valid notion of gender identity, um, but I'm not sure if it's the same as what other people mean by that. So where does this concept of gender identity come from, um, according to Stock, uh, Ankar? Well, so part of what she's distinguishing is this idea of gender identity and gender identity theory. Um, so, and the idea of gender identity is embedded in the theory, but it's, it's her label for kind of now widely assumed ideas. And again, I think it, so she puts it like these are four um, axioms of what I'm calling gender identity theory, or, and you could, or you could think of it as four kind of basic principles of gender identity theory. And again, in terms of thinking about the argument, I think it's important to get that what she's not saying necessarily is that there's some academic who holds these four principles in exactly the way I'm stating them, but that if you think about more widely the cultural debate, do you recognize these principles as sort of driving the debate? And I think of putting them, that she puts them as axioms, they're sort of unquestionable principles that part of the debate works like, doesn't everyone know this? These are truths on which now we have to figure out how to proceed. Um, and she's challenging these. So in, in the book in various ways, as she says. And so these are what she lists as the four axioms or basic unquestionable principles. And it's worth just thinking as I, I'll, I'll read these, do you recognize these? Like when, if to the extent that you followed any of this debate, again, more culturally, not have you read the academic journals and so on, do you recognize these? And so this is what she puts as the four in terms of what she's, what she's calling gender identity theory. So one is you and I, and everyone else has an important inner state called gender identity. So this is like a fundamental or characteristic of every person. So that's one. For some people, their inner gender, gender identity fails to match their bio, biological sex. And that think of male or female. Um, usually it will be put their biological sex originally assigned to them and to, at birth. So it's like when you're born and you're in the hospital and you're assigned male or female, that's part of how it's looked at. And she puts it, these are trans people. So people with the misaligned gender identity, misaligned with what they're assigned at birth, these are trans people. So that's two. Three, gender identity, not biological sex, is what makes you a man or a woman or in brackets or neither. So it's gender identity, not biological sex makes you a man or a woman. And then four, the existence of trans people generates a moral obligation upon all of us to recognize and legally protect gender identity and not biological sex and not as even italicized in the book. So it's part of what is she's arguing against is this idea that now what we have to protect is gender identity and not biological sex. And that's what she's taking as 
This is what I'm referring to as gender identity theory. And I'm challenging this theory, which means these four basic principles. So does she think there is such a thing as gender identity? She does, uh, or at least it seems like she does, but she certainly doesn't think that it's anything like what this so-called gender identity theory is recommending. And the, the, the reasons that she gives in critique of its view of what gender identity is, I think are pretty interesting. Uh, part of the problem is that gender as a concept is, is very ambiguous. And one of the things she does is to distinguish a number of different ways it's used. Uh, one way it's used, uh, more traditionally is just to equate it with sex. Uh, and if, if that's what uh, gender is, then her position on that is pretty clear. We've, we've already talked about what she has to say about biological sex. Uh, but she, I think, agrees with a influential feminist view that there's, a, there's some kind of distinction between gender and sex, uh, that, uh, sex gender has something to do with not just what is your biology but how do you behave what kind of choices do you make what kind of attitudes do you have and what are you ex how are you expected to behave uh, by the society around you and there are different ways they cash that out some of which she agrees with some of which uh, she definitely rejects um, she uh, this also relates to the issue of obviously of uh, man and woman. Uh, male and female are terms that you can use for the whole biological realm. Uh, you might say that uh, the simplest definition of man or woman you could give, the traditional definition you could give would be a man is a adult male human, a woman is an adult female human. It, that is usually rejected by most gender identity theorists and uh, be, because of their particular idea of what gender identity is, that as the axioms Ankar Red indicate it's something other than biological sex that needs to determine whether you're a man or a woman. And she considers uh, basically two major proposals for what gender identity is supposed to be other than something that's related to or based on biological sex. Uh, one is that it's this kind of innate state that you're born with, that something about your genetics determines that you have a certain inner identity that is in some way at, at odds with your biological sex. Uh, that's not the one she focuses on the most. Uh, she, I think she makes a pretty quick and compelling case that there's not really much evidence to think that there's anything innate that you're born with, that uh, any of the evidence that they cite in favor of this view could easily be uh, instead seen as supporting a view that it's a, your identity is acquired or influenced by how you interpret your experience. So the main view that she targets is this, is this idea that gender identity is some kind of inner interpretation, uh, some kind of inner psychology that is independent of any biological facts of, or any facts about biological sex, even if biological sex exists. And her critique here is more or less that it's just impossible to make that view coherent. Because if you, let's say you are a, uh, someone who has the male gender identity or the, the, the gender identity of, of being a man, we can't even really understand what that means unless it makes reference to some, somebody's having uh, 
male biological sex. They want to be able to say, you're trans if you identify with manhood, but what's manhood? Well, it's not something that's uh, the biological sex of someone else. It's not something that you fail to have biologically. It's again, just something that's assigned to you at birth. Well, but what is it that's assigned to you at birth? Uh, if it, it's not clear what it is, if, it, if you can't even characterize that in, in any kind of biological terms. And so she, at the end of the day, thinks this is just, this is just a basically incoherent view that doesn't have a basis for it, that doesn't have any sense to it, if you can't refer to the fact of biological sex in one way, directly or indirectly. Okay, so if, if gender identity is not just something we're born with according to stock, and if it's not that we can just interpret our gender whichever way we want, what is her explanation of what gender identity is? Well, she makes a proposal. I don't think that there's a lot in her case that hinges on it uh, for reasons that we will soon discover. But she she says she's she's sympathetic to the idea there is such a thing as gender identity, that it has something to do with your psychological assessment of your own real sex in relation to the real sex of others. So if you really are biologically male, but you identify more with other people who are who really are biologically female, uh, and that identification manifests in the way that you behave and the things that you want to do, then that's uh, that we can we can make sense of uh, gender identity of that kind. Though interestingly, she also then thinks that not everybody, obviously at least, has a gender identity of that kind. She thinks that people who are trans do because they have this conflict where um, they don't feel at home in their own bodies, uh, and she thinks maybe some. Uh, non-trans people, as cis people, maybe some cis people have uh, a gender identity if they if they like really identify with their masculinity, like you know guys who you know love to drive cars and shoot guns and 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 make that just part of their character. They, they love to think about how manly they are, and some women are maybe the same way. Maybe they have a gender identity even if they're not trans. But she's not convinced that all of us do. If we don't spend too much time thinking about I'm a man's man or I'm a woman's woman. And then, if that's the case, uh, it's 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 hard to see how you could you could in any way connect that kind of concept of gender identity to what it is to be a man or a woman, as I think um, Ankar wants to say a little bit more about. Yeah, let, let me just emphasize two things that you brought up, uh, Ben, that I think are important in terms of the book and the book's argument and learning from that argument is so one of the things you put one of the things you brought up is that in many of these um conceptions of gender identity they're derivative on they're counting on the issue of biological sex and you can't really understand even what is being claimed if you don't see that. And that's part of what she points out. And that's important in terms of just thinking of what is being claimed and can you make it into, can you put it into a coherent framework? Part of what she's arguing that even for the, like leave aside, we talked about like reproduction and medicine. So even here, you have to see the concepts of biological sex in play. And and there's an issue of is it you would you even have a coherent position for some of these if you then said no these things are arbitrary and so on then like do you have a 
coherent conception of gender identity. It's not clear for some of them that you do, and that's part of what her critique is. And then another thing, it's not emphasized, but I think it's the way she looks at things, and I think it's the right way to look at things, which is we're dealing here with a phenomenon for which you don't have to say it has one cause. And this is often, I think, the case in biology. And if you're just thinking of medicine and symptoms, you don't have to say, okay, this person has a fever. It has one cause. He has, everybody who has a fever has the flu or something. Like that. That's, I mean, that's obviously oversimplification, not really understanding causality. Or if you put it like a, a more neutral or positive thing, that somebody's tall and that there's one cause, there's a tall gene or something like that. And that's the one cause for why everybody's tall. That's not how biological phenomenon work. And so here, both when she talks about gender, that she has certain views about what gender identity might be, she's careful to say, this doesn't have to mean that everybody, this is the explanation for everybody who seems to have something like a gender identity or a mismatched or misaligned gender identity. And that, I think, as I said, that's the right way to think about some of these phenomenon that if you're looking for what is the cause, you're often, that's a loaded question. Like, how do you know there's one cause about it? Um, and so when, if you think of, so she has a kind of tentative proposal for what gender identity might be referring to, at least in a number of cases. And she gives some, and part of it is she gives some evidence for what people say about this, what trans people say about their experience and so on. And wouldn't this be, like, wouldn't, if you thought of it in the way Ben was describing as a kind of, she puts it a kind of identification or even idealization of the, man or masculinity and female femininity, wouldn't that make sense of some of what we're seeing and what people are, are reporting? And then part of her analysis that is that if you think of it like this, you clearly can't define or redefine woman, man in terms of gender identity. It's that, that you can't go from, um, uh, if, if you take the definition of woman, of adult, human, female, to now what we're going to redefine it because we've got a more sophisticated perspective or no more that it's adult uh, human who has a female gender identity like that. There's no way that one would think the, yeah, that we're referring to the same thing in a more sophisticated way it, from when we go to like you define an element in terms of its atomic number when chemistry and science reaches the point of thinking about elements in terms of they have atomic number and so on. And then you define it like that. Like you can think of that as a definition that's penetrating more to fundamentals about the same thing. And here, what she argues is like that is not what's going on. And you couldn't really think of it if you're, if you have, if you take a view of gender identity, even if you think there is such a thing, what the evidence points to is there's no way you can re redefine woman in terms of this. And so what would, if you're thinking from a cognitive perspective, if you redefined it like this, then you would have to form new concepts for women and man, female, male in a biological sense, because they're necessary and they're 
get, get it, enabling you to grasp things about the world that doesn't you can't map onto gender identity like this. Yeah, I think she makes the point. It would be tremendously confusing growing up if you point to someone who you think is a woman, and then someone tells you, "No, they're not a woman because they don't they don't have a gender identity." It would just you know make a mash of your conceptual development. Um, so why? Why does Stock think this um, knowing about this phenomenon is important? Um, what does it help us understand about the world? Ankar um, or Ben? Um, well, it it's part of helping us to understand the phenomenon that is out there. So part of it, she thinks there are people that it's capturing something to say that they have. Uh, they feel misaligned. Some of it is like I'm in the wrong body and stuff. That it, it's like this is a real phenomenon. What one's trying to understand, and the, the term uh, gender identity is given a certain characterization of, a, or a, as we've been talking about. She has a certain view of that. That it's trying to, to capture and explain part of what is going on in these cases. So that's part of the value of it. But there's a broader perspective that you get I think there's it's linked in the argument but these are two separable things that it's a view of gender identity as a form of identification or idealization and she linkens that to or links that up with there's this kind of view in psychology I think she really emphasizes it's in psychoanalytic psychoanalytic psychology of this there's this phenomenon and more broadly it's it's and she thinks that's what's going on in regard to um, biological sex here. And, and uh, but there's also the wider perspective that uh, so on the issue of being referred to as a woman or man, and the issue of pronouns and so on. That part of what is going on there, she thinks. So she has another view about that. It you can see the connection between these two views is that it's, she puts it, 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 it's an immersion in a fiction. And here that, that more broadly, there's a phenomenon of immersion when you're watching, reading a novel, watching a movie, when you say you're immersed in it, that there's, there's a way in which absorbed in it, you're going along, but, that that's not in any negative sense. Like these are positive experiences of reading a novel you like, watching a movie you like. Uh, that you're immersed in it. You're going along with it as though like this is what's really happening. And you often object to when people uh, kind of break that spell. That you're immersed in a movie and someone then says. Well, that that was ridiculous. That could never happen. No car could could uh, jump over a bridge like that, or whatever. And they're breaking the spell in effect. Um, that so that there's a positive value to being immersed like this, and that she thinks that part of what is going on. So again, thinking more broadly about the cultural debate and some of the emotion and sensitivities around it, is that it's. Um, Many people know that you can't literally change sex and that women and men or male, female refer 
to biological sex categories, but there's a perspective of which that people want to be immersed in a fiction about this, and there's reasons why they might want that and why it's experienced as, um, however you want to put it, beneficial, comforting, and so on. She thinks it easily can have drawbacks about it, but that she thinks that's part of what the phenomenon is if you're trying to understand it. And that, that's also, it's interesting. I don't fully agree with it, um, but it's that's an interesting perspective. I, think. Okay. I mean, one thing that's interesting about it is that it it's, and, and part of what she's, I think, been criticized for here is that if it's a fiction, it's not true. And so that's, she's squarely confronting uh, that fact. Uh, and, but she's also saying there can be a value in fiction and in immersing yourself in it. So it's unclear to me, at least from her account, how much she thinks one ought to immerse oneself in fiction. She clearly doesn't think you should always do it. She clearly thinks that there are there are contexts where people have to confront the facts. And uh, you know, where where I might disagree with her is about how where those contexts are and uh, whether they're more expansive perhaps than she acknowledges Ankar in a previous conversation you were you were saying that there's a similar phenomena with religion where people often ask not to have their spell broken and where uh, there are too many people in our society who are in effect accommodating of their desire to immerse themselves in fiction and that that's that's an important connection perhaps we should be making to the same issue here did you want to elaborate on that yes yeah, so she's I, I think from the book, it's particularly when it gets to a level of that we're being forced to go along with this fiction, that it's really objectionable and that it's you have to say these things and act in this way as though you believe this, even if you don't. Um, and it's it's so when we were talking earlier about like this is being legislated around. So, then it's you know, you're required by law. You're going to be penalized if you don't do this. So that, at that point, it's clear she thinks that, that we can't maintain a fiction at the point of a gun. It's true that at earlier stages, she thinks that like the more you lose the sense of you're immersed in a fiction and you're blurring fiction and fact that you can't move from one to another. So part of like thinking about a movie and so on. It's not as when a person leaves the movie theater, they still think, well, they're immersed in the movie and they're mistaking what's going on in the real world for what is what went on in the movie theater. And the more that blurs in a person's mind, I think the more she thinks like this can be a real problem. She brings up gameplay, like video games, that people, this, people can lose that distinction. And that's a real problem. And that's not just coercive. It's preferred as any coercion, but certainly when it becomes coercive, she's then objects to. But when you think about religion, and I mean, I'm an atheist, I think religion is a massive fiction. And there has been and has been through the centuries the, a view, the more it's pushed on, like, do you really have any justification for this? Is this really true? It's um, okay, maybe not but allow us to have this fiction and help us preserve it. Um, and it's, it's like, don't bring up uncomfortable things. Don't ask 
like, do you really have any reason to believe in God? And so, and, and it often will be painted as, well, that's being kind to religious observers and so on. And I don't think any of that is true. Um, I don't think um, in most contexts, it's legitimate to, uh, to cater to a fiction like this that someone is holding up. There, I can think of a few contexts would maybe, but in general, um, I think no. And so in terms of thinking of this as a phenomenon that she's bringing up, I wish there was more grappling with, like, isn't this what goes on in religion? There's a little bit of that in the book, but isn't that what goes on in religion? And isn't this when people say, don't be so critical of other people's religion and so on, isn't they have some deference and it's put as it's a kind of issue of tact or kindness or so on. Like, is that really true? And what are all the detrimental things that have arisen because of that? I mean, I think there's all kinds of things. So in terms of thinking of this and thinking about how true is this, how, like how what does the argument establish? Is this actually true that there's the, this positive value? I think that's one phenomenon you would have to liken it to and think about. Ben, when we were talking about um, why you were impressed with this book, I think you mentioned uh, chapter five, uh, What Makes a Woman, uh, which actually kind of sets forth almost a theory of concepts. Um, can you say what's impressive to you about the um, how, how she sets that out? Well, it's not just chapter five. It's, it's, it's lots of places in the book. And I think that to the extent that we've talked already about how she analyzes the concept of biological sex, how she analyzes the concept of gender and gender identity, you can see there, there's, there's a definite kind of epistemology that she's relying on, an epistemology of concepts. And it's a really good one. It's really impressive uh, that a contemporary philosopher is thinking about concepts in the way that she does. And it Part of why I'm impressed by it is because it, it bears a lot of affinities to the way that Ayn Rand thinks about concepts in her book, Introduction to Objectivist Epistemology. So Stock thinks that concepts need to be based on perceptually observable similarities and differences. She thinks that uh, even, and even, even though they pick out real differences in the world, they are nonetheless, it's not just any old difference in the world that, that you, that a, that a concept requires, that it also has to bear a certain relation to what she calls our interests. And she's pretty clearly talking about cognitive interests, that you need concepts in order to understand, explain, navigate the world. So it's not, it's not pragmatism. And so for that reason, this relation to our interests doesn't make them arbitrary constructs, which is why she's able to oppose the social constructivist view. And she even talks about how some concepts are better than others and that they as we discover more about a thing, we, we learn that certain kinds of similarities and differences aren't as cognitively important as others. We discard them, we redefine them uh, in order to improve our scientific understanding of the world. She's, she's sensitive to the fact that, that borderline cases aren't a problem. Uh, they would only be a problem for a kind of Platonistic theory of concepts. They're not if, if you understand that they have this relation to human cognitive purposes, because there you can, you can make a choice, like what purpose are you trying to accomplish? I would I would really love to give her a copy of Introduction to Objectivist Epistemology um, that uh, that sounds so many of these same themes uh, and that appreciates that that overall concepts are these powerful 
cognitive tools and that if we want to if we want to try to um, resolve these big philosophical controversies that are usually centrally about the meaning of a core concept as they are in this controversy about sex and gender that you you need precisely this kind of um, theory of concepts to do it uh, and so I, mean, I, I spoke before about how this is kind of a model of what a public intellectual should be doing writing on topics like this and it's it's especially I think because of this reason uh, that I think you you see it coming out I don't, did you want to add anything to that Ankar? I'll just give one example that she gives that's outside the field of uh, sex gender of, of this of her argument in effect of just how she talks about concepts because you're saying she has a good view and it's pretty explicit I mean so she uses that these are cognitive tools though that's her term and it's very similar Ayn Rand calls them tools of cognition I mean, it's, it's the same idea um but it's it's so it's not implicit in the it's articulate it's not a theory of concepts but it's a view of concepts and how to think about them that in objectivist terms is neither intrinsic nor subjective so neither it's platonism and if you say well it's not all given up in some uh mysterious second dimension then it's all made up so that's it's either intrinsic in reality that's plato or it's subjective it's we all make it up and she she's heavily critical of the people I think she takes Judith Butler in the debate to be one of these people who thinks concepts are just all made up and in effect and pretty much in so many words she said like that's a crazy position um and it is in the end a crazy position she gives an example just just to get some of the uh, flavor of how she's thinking about it outside of the debate yeah we could have a concept for anything that's two years old or older so like this pen would be one of the it, like say it was manufactured four years ago that yeah you could have that and but why would you have a con like that would be crazy to have a concept like that it's not a tool to do anything but if it turns out that all of a sudden we're it, it's lethal for us to manipulate anything that's over two years old then you better be sure we'll have a concept for like that's a thing that's lethal in effect and it we will conceptualize that and it will be important like it would be crazy not to have a concept if that were the context and that's a non-intrinsicist non-subjectivist view of concepts and so it's it's definitely present in the book and and um impacting her analysis yeah um, Dan, I think we have we have already covered a number of the issues that were in our last little section, and it's yeah. past the hour here. So I think we should maybe look at some questions and start to wrap up. What have yeah, we, we received um, a few questions to YouTube and Zoom? Um, I think um, would you have anything to say about um, this cultural trend? And I think the questioner. Uh, has in mind the kind of cultural trend that sets itself in opposition to stock is that a um, expression of second-handedness well i think uh, some of the things that we talked about today should should help answer that question I and mean, we talked about how these four uh principles of of gender identity theory uh if they sound familiar to you it's because you've you've heard them all over the place and one thing Ankar said was uh she's not necessarily she's not necessarily saying there's some theorist who holds all of these 
Uh, and there might not be, though Judith Butler is probably a, a good contender. Um, the fact that so many people hold them but don't have uh, obviously clearly reasoned positions for them uh, and that they have caught on kind of in a religious fervor is is a sign that yeah that you are you are talking here about a, a modern expression of, of second-handedness and and I should say it you know by which Ayn Rand means unthinking acceptance of uh, the values and beliefs of others as your standard so uh there's definitely something like that going on in the way this gender identity theory has informed a lot of modern activism uh i should say i think that off very often the other side of the of the of the controversy exhibits many of the same kinds of characteristics like they they're not opposing it because they've thought carefully about the uh, why we need these concepts, what cognitive purpose they serve, what 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 they conceptualize in reality. You know, it's often simplified to, well, you know, you're if you've got a penis, you're a man. Well, but what about some of these borderline biological cases that they haven't thought about that Stock does talk about? There's a there's a kind of tribalism and a second-handed tribalism there, too often informed by good old-fashioned religion, um, because of the perception that that some of these views shatter the traditional uh, views about uh, masculinity and femininity. Do you have more to add, Ankar? I'll just say the the form of second-handedness here is a pretty bad form in and parts of what I mean Ben put it at the end in terms of tribalism. That's a pretty bad form of second-handedness. And I would another way, a little bit above tribalism, but I think if you think of what is going on in this debate, there's a real authoritarianism. In it, and it's this is what I'm supposed to think. So second-handedness can just be like the way the person's forming it is his his ideas and his views is he just looks too much what other people think. But here, there's it's not just that it's I'm supposed to think this or I have to think this, and this is on both sides. So the people pushing back, it's I have to think the opposite, and it like that's in effect what my tribe orders. And so that's what I'm going to do, regardless of whether I know what I'm talking about, I have any good arguments against what's being said. And so there's a real authoritarianism here that precludes actual thinking and debate. And I should add that I think that the, the force of that authoritarianism is, is such that it, it really underscores how brave she's been in opposing it, that I mean, she's not. This is not a person who's got some anonymous account on Twitter who's uh, who's uh, you know taking pot shots at the popular ideology. This is somebody who put her job on the line and put her name on the line, and you know had hundreds of philosophers condemn her and call for her to be fired and such. And so uh, you you can uh, you can tell that it's a it's a real. Uh, you know, commitment to her discipline as a philosopher that like this is she sees the arguments she doesn't she's not convinced by what the other side says and just wants to speak what she thinks is the truth okay um thanks Ankar and Ben I think we should start to wrap up now um but uh the discussion doesn't have to end there i would like to encourage everyone to head on over to clubhouse uh some of you 
may already be listening to the simulcast there, and uh, we will join you there in just a moment uh, to take your questions and have more conversation about all of these issues. Uh, we do have uh, one recommendation for some additional reading in addition to the book, Material Girls. Um, some reading that would go along well with that is chapter seven of Introduction to Objectivist Epistemology. Um, and I think everybody to see the um, kind of resonance with some of what Stock brings up in her own book. Uh, and for that, go to bit.ly slash intro T-O-E, all lowercase. Uh, we hope you'll join us uh, here for next week's show, uh, but stay tuned for information about that topic. Uh, and we would like you, if you enjoyed this program or previous programs, if you enjoyed the recent Johnny Carson uh, releases of um, previously unknown uh, audio and video of Ayn Rand on Johnny Carson, uh, if you're getting value out of this, please donate. Uh, one way to do that, if you're on YouTube, is to look in your bottom right for the donate button. Um, and we very much appreciate all of those donations. Um, I should say, Dan, we got a number of those donations that came in just during this session, uh, some very generous ones. So thank you very much for, uh, you You all took us over $1,000 for the current campaign. So thanks so much for that. Excellent. Um, and if you did enjoy this podcast, uh, even if you can't donate, please subscribe to our channel um, if you're on YouTube. Uh, click the bell to get notifications uh, when we go live and post new recordings. Um, if you're watching the recording, please like, uh, comment, share. Uh, we like your help in uh, getting us to attract new viewers. And please do the same if you're on Facebook. If you have questions or comments about today's episode, um, in addition to going to Clubhouse for those, you can also email us. Um, also, if you have suggestions for future episodes, please send us an email to that address. It's newideal at einrand.org. We read all of your emails and we will reply to as many of them as we can. Okay, so that's it for today. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Ankar. And I will see you in Clubhouse in just a second. Thanks, Dan. Bye. Thanks, Dan. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.